Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Dan, my listeners know me, but they don't know you. And I always like to let them know a little bit about you. Good day to you. Where are you joining us from? I'm uh, I'm in Boston. Boston. Okay. So is Sudbury like a little suburb of Boston? Yeah, we're about uh, 40 minutes west of the city, almost directly straight west from Boston. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. I'm going to let my listeners know a little bit about you. Dan Lyons is a New York Times bestselling author, as well as a screenwriter and journalist. His latest book, Shut the Blank Up, we can say it because we're on a podcast, Shut the Fuck Up, Uh, The Power uh, of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in Endlessly Noisy World. Dan's memoir, Disrupted by uh, Misadventure in a Startup Bubble, tells the story of two years he spent working in a cult-like software startup and became an instant hit. That was a previous book. Dan followed it up with another book called Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us, a Critique of Silicon Valley, Corporate Culture. Dan's a writer on HB was a writer on HBO's hit comedy, comedy, Silicon Valley, and has worked as a technology journalist at Forbes, Fortune, and Newsweek. He has contributed articles in the New York Times, Wired, and other publications. He has been featured in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Guardian, NPR. And BBC. So quite the track record in history. Pleasure having you on, an honor to have you on, uh, to speak about your book, Shut the Fuck Up, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. So, Dan, I gave the the listeners really a background about, you know, your ability as a writer and somebody who's got a history. But there's more to this book than just that. There's a lot more to it than that. Can you tell the listeners why you wrote the book and what were you going through personally that you learned that STFU, I'm just going to say it that way, it, it, it transformed your life? Yeah. Because um, this, this is another kind of memoir, actually, to a certain degree. It uh, kind of is. There's a thread of memoir through the book, and then there's a lot of research. So it's kind of... yes doing two things at once and um yeah it began in a way it's a very personal story um of uh me realizing right in the early days of the covid lockdown so in the what would that have been the early months of well march of 2000 march of two or i'm sorry i might say 2000 2020 march of 2020 yeah and uh a few months before that, my marriage had encountered some problems and we had separated. I was living um, in a rented house near my family and I had had some sort of setbacks professionally. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine on text and complaining about one thing. And I can't remember what it was, but um, something that had I was angry at how things had worked out and then had to admit that, well, if I hadn't said that one thing, then none of the rest could have happened. And, um, and I think I texted, you know, I need to learn how to STFU. And the other person said, well, that's, you know, that might be a good topic for a book. And I said, yeah, you know, it's kind of a funny title, right? You know, STFU. And, um, I think at first I was thinking it might be kind of a funny book more than anything else. And then um, 
But then I realized like, no, 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 I, in a way, everything I'm going through right now was caused by lack of impulse control on my part. And boy, I wonder if I could, um, if I could make my life better by doing this. And then I started out with two questions. One is why do some people talk more than others? Why are some people you know, compulsive talkers? And the other is how can you fix it? And the first question was easy enough to find some research and get through that. The second one was funny because we have, you know, there's thousands of books that will teach you how to be a public speaker. There's coaches, there's classes you can take. Um, but nobody ever teaches a class on how to not talk and how to shut up. And um, so I kind of thought, wow, I have to figure this out for myself. And yeah, then it became became kind of a a journey of doing a lot of research and interviewing experts and ended up learning way more about speech than I ever thought I would ever know and finding out that it wasn't just a way to avoid calamities, which is what I originally set out to do, and found out that in many ways, and not just for over-talkers, but for anyone, knowing how to talk less, at least strategically or tactically, can enable you to gain advantages in pretty much, like pretty much every aspect of your life. It's yeah. pretty amazing, but the research is out there. It is, and your, and book, shows your book does a good job of giving the facts and the research. An excellent job. I mean, I was blown away by some of the things that I read. So, you know, you mentioned that learning to STFU will change your life. It obviously has for yourself. You yep. state it'll make you smarter, more likable, more creative, and more powerful. Um, what do you believe happened to your own psyche when you learned to listen more and only speak when you had something to say that was meaningful? Now, you had cited yeah. at a couple of points in here, we'll talk about them in a minute, but people like Tim Cook and Jack Dorsey and Richard Branson and you know mm -hmm. Steve Jobs, there's a bunch of them that really were and are a lot more silence and people are yeah. a little bit uncomfortable with silence. Yeah. Silence is very hard for people to tolerate. Uh, there's a study that gets cited a lot that says it only takes about four seconds of silence in a conversation for people to start feeling a little, you know, bit of un discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it doesn't take much. And yet it's also very, very powerful both in terms of, uh, in many different ways. Um, one can be that you're just um, showing respect to the other person. They said something and you're sitting and really, you know, you're thinking about it. You're not just whoop, firing back. Um, but there's also uh, uh, a lot of material out there about how silence is really great in negotiations. It can actually give you a leg up. If you can learn to sit with that discomfort it can actually help you prevail in a negotiation or do better in a negotiation. But um, I would say, yeah, it. <clears throat> this really did change my life. So, for example, by the time, well before I finished the book, I was, my wife and I had um, got back together. My relationship with my daughter was much, much stronger. Um, those were the, the biggest things to me where, yes, it can help you in your career and 
um, negotiations and buy a car. But, but to me, it was, wow, that it can make you a better parent, a better partner, and maybe just a better person. And then the really, really big revelation was it's not just about what you get out of it. It's that you can also make the lives of the people around you better. So it has this very powerful effect, you know, on everyone around you, which, um, that that's what I find amazing. And I know your podcast is about personal transformation or yeah, right. Yes. Personal transformation, wellness. This actually can make, this this actually can heal you. You know, I I read it as something that, you know, you, you mentioned you were an endless talker before and you'd go to meetings and you just talk to talk and try and meet all these people and everything. And, you know, I, kind of was that way too. And also at the same time, uncomfortable with it. I had to force myself to Mm -hmm. kind of do it. Right. And I Uh think from what I read between the lines, it seemed like it it might've even been that way for you, but here's where I, I got a statistic, which just blew my mind. You put in the book, you mentioned that annually Americans sent through over a billion meetings but that only 11% of them are productive. (laughs) Okay, You cite some of the most successful people like Tim Cook, Jack Dossie, Richard Branson, take painfully long pauses when they speak and that their words are carefully chosen. I have been with a lot of people like that, and it is much more interesting to be with them. How do our listeners become more aware of how much they're speaking versus listening? And what are the five ways that you mention in the book to STFU? Great. Um, the five ways that I came up with, and I don't know if this is the be all and end all list, but it's five that work for me mm-hmm. uh, are as follows. So number one is called when possible, say nothing. And it's almost like a game I'll play with myself and, um, you know, strictly speaking, it's always possible to say nothing, but I mean, in situations where I'm at the checkout counter and I might sort of tend to go like, so how your day going? Ooh, strike up a conversation. I just don't just, you know, have the transaction. Thank you. Bye. And, um, and I've tried to practice that, especially in low pressure situations like that. So you can, um, you can develop the habit. The next one I have is called Master the Power of the Pause, which we sort of talked about, but using pauses in conversation can be very powerful. Another really uh, very slow talker and deliberate thinker was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She Mm -hmm. famously, famously took long pauses. Um, The third one I have is, is to quit social media. And I don't know if anybody can really quit completely, but to dial it way back, and I have a lot of strategies for ways to use social media without being exposed as much to the harm of it, or at least, I hope, minimizing it. Um, And my fourth thing was to seek out silence. One thing that really helped me as I was doing this was to go find ways to spend time without a screen, without doing anything, just doing nothing and being in silence and one my my favorite thing was i i took up forest bathing which is a a really interesting practice um and the last my last of the five is to uh become an active listener when that you can actually do a whole book about listening in fact i thought maybe i should do that next 
it's so hard to be a, a good listener. And um, I spent time with listening coaches and people who are really good listeners. And um, I learned how to do it. I'm better than I used to be, but I still, I still don't think I'm, I'm all the way there. Yeah. You know, that, that, that forest bathing is interesting yeah. because like meditation or anything, the solitude you know, frequently can get somebody of almost any age to think about their own finitude. So when they think hmm. about their finitude, they're huh. actually able to kind of reflect on their life currently as well. You know, what have I lived? What have I done good? What am I grateful for? And you start to kind of reflect on the positive, right? You're, hmm. you're, you're doing that because you know, there's a there's a finality to all of us. We just don't know when. Yeah. Um, and so the question becomes is, what are you doing every day? And I think that solitude and that bathing in the trees is really an awesome thing that you did. I want to commend you on that. Now, if you would speak to the listeners about Talkaholic Scale, you found this scale somewhere. You didn't make it up. Uh, that researchers created on how you scored on a talkaholic scale. Yeah. And I'm sure you rated when you first started off the wall. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and now you tried to talk less. Um, you found it challenging. Uh, speak with the listeners about some of the internal things you went through and a bit about this, by the way, for my listeners, you can buy his book, which we're going to have a link on Amazon, and you can get to him at danlyons.io. That's L-Y-O-N-S.io. But this, this um, is in the book for you to be able to take the test. Uh, how'd you score, Dan? And how did you work through those challenges? <laughs> it, was, it, was a, <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was pretty disheartening. So... Um, the talkaholic scale I found because I thought, I wonder if there is such a thing as a talkaholic early on. And I Googled the word and sure enough, up came this, um, this research that had been done in the 1990s by a husband and wife team of communication researchers at West Virginia University. Um, and um, Virginia, Richmond and James McCroskey. McCroskey was this huge legend in um in that field. I remember. Um, and he had passed away, but Virginia Richmond was retired and living in West Virginia. And I found her anyway, they decided they, they believed that there were some people who not just talked too much, but for whom talking was a problem, like akin to an addiction. And they created this test that is a self-scoring test that uh, can determine whether you are a talkaholic, how extreme it is. So it's, 16 questions, you self-score it. You can find it, by the way, it's in the book, but it's also on the Time Magazine site with the article, with the excerpt of my book that they ran. And I created a a website. It's just a URL. You can find it. You can go to my website and find a link to it. There's many paths to this, but it's very easy. It takes a couple of minutes. And the lowest score you can get is 10, and the highest is 50. And I got a 50. And um, <laughs> And the fun thing is you can have someone else score you too to just you know see if you're roughly accurate and my wife gave me a 50 and said she wish she could give me a 60 you know <laughs> my wife's very very much an introvert and very quiet person so you can imagine it's very annoying um 
So yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't think it's rigorously scientific, but it's pretty good. A lot of people I know have taken it and, um, felt it's that it accurate about where they are. Yeah. It's accurate. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, look for my listeners, please do, you know, we'll put a link to that times magazine article. Um, what we're speaking about today and hopefully we're having a dialogue about not just talking to one another is how you can listen more and talk less. And you state that talkers over talkers are universally Mm -hmm. hated. Uh, (laughs) Each language has different words to describe these talkers. And you had, you put a whole list of different things you used Mm -hmm. that they're using to describe uh, sometimes I remember diarrhea mouth used to be one that we used oh, here in the yeah. United States. Yeah. Um, can you speak about the six categories of over talkers and how oh. anxiety has exacerbated the over talking situation in our society today? Yeah. Um, first of all, I, I did find it really fun to look up all the words. I didn't look up. I, I called friends of mine who are from different countries and ask them, what do they call, uh, you know, someone who's annoying who talks too much in your country? And there were some great ones you know, from a friend of mine in Italy and then all over the world. And it turns, and it, right, and all over the world, there are terms and they're always really kind of, ugh, you know, you wouldn't want yeah. to be called it. Right. Um, and yeah, I sort of, again, this is not uh, any kind of scientific definition of overtalkers, but I identified um, several, one or I would I call ego talkers who are people, generally men, um, often well to do, um, who really just have big egos and believe that their thoughts are more important than everybody else. And so they know more than, than everybody. So they should just eat up all of the oxygen. Um, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You know, we've all met the, that guy, you know, and, uh, they're nervous talkers who, you know, they're just nervous people. When they get nervous, it's more situational. There's blurters who tend to be, I think, very, very bright and very quick-witted. They make great comedy writers. and um, But they don't have a filter, and they don't read the room sometimes and blur something out because it's just funny to them. And um, there are blabbers who just keep going. It's just you know, like what you call a motor mouth. They tell the same stories over and over. You know, they, yeah, and they know that they've told it before and they still tell it anyway. Um, there are people I call ruminators who are more, they just like to think out loud. They may be kind of talking to you, but they're not really talking to you. They just are trying to process something out loud and you happen to be there. You're like a foil for them. Mm-hmm. And then talkaholics who are, um, sort of defined by the easiest way to think of it is people who, will say something even when they know that what they're about to say will hurt them and they still say it or know that if they said nothing, it would be very much in their interest and they still say it. They, they can't resist that impulse. They kind of have to let you know what they know. I remember a many, many years ago, um, I had a manager who was not only a Dale Carnegie sales instructor and, and taught oh. the course, but we, I used to work in an office where there was one gentleman in particular, and he would say, Don, I asked you for the time. I didn't ask you how to make the watch. Because what would happen is the guy would 
go into like literally this whole diet about what it is. It's like, dude, no. All I asked for was the time. I didn't want yeah. to know how you made the watch. That's right? a very so good way of putting it. It was it was an excellent way of putting it because there are a lot of people will tell you how to make a watch, and you know mm-hmm. all you wanted to know was the time. Um, so look, you speak about the media pollution, and we're going to get into this and the incredible amounts of noise. And I paraphrase this because really, in the book, you go into this in in quite a depth. Uh, that we're subjected to through our digital devices. And um, interestingly enough, Dan, uh, my son and I created a course called Never Mind the Noise, Thriving in a World of Ever-Increasing Complexity. Oh, wow. We we taught that course um, to people in the logistics field and all over uh, the United States. And part of our course was to get people to meditate because most of them never had for like 15 minutes. And I remember going to these conferences and we were like a breakout session. Uh, And to make a long story short, we ended up, people were talking about us. And for three days, our room was full. It was jammed full of people wanting the silence, wanting the solace, wanting time Mm -hmm. to be with themselves and think about their own thoughts. So in, in this media, this, this, these digital devices, you state, we need to S-I-T-F-O, shut it the uh, blank uh, off. Yeah. I would agree with you. And in yeah. your estimation, what do you believe all this noise and distraction is doing to us emotionally, mentally, and spiritually? Oh. Spiritually is an interesting aspect. Um, but let me hold off on that. I, I think there's an, we're in an age of agitation that a lot of the things that we deal with every day that also are very useful. So we're using our laptops now and they're terrific, right? And we're using Zoom and it's terrific. Um, but also can cause us to be very agitated and to be overwhelmed. I think there's just so much information coming at us from so many places mm-hmm. that our, and our brains aren't really ready to handle that. If you think even, even 20 years ago, the internet, there wasn't that much on the internet and there was no streaming. A lot of things that exist today. So you think in 20 years, quite a lot has changed in terms of how much information is accessible to us. And it's accessible all the time because we carry that phone with us everywhere we go. Um, and, and, now I think we've, brain- and now, Dan, we've got chat CBT. So yeah. literally, we've got an AI device that they were talking to the CEO of, of Microsoft last night on 60 Minutes about the mistakes that Shirley made when it first came out, because it was saying mm-hmm. things and trying to do things, right? And, you know, you think about this, we've, you and I have lived through an era of, you know, I, I go back to the day when there was no cell phone, and I sure you do, we used faxes. Yeah. And there was um, a Palm Pilot was the first thing. We used to like trade names back and forth on a Palm Pilot, but it was very rudimentary in nature, right? And now we've accelerated to these devices, which literally within, you know, they, they are more powerful than, you know, even our computers, many of our computers, right? So yeah. I get that we're a polluted. This is, it's a pollution, but it's a almost a necessity to operate in the world we're operating in. But at the same time, how do people kind of turn it off, shut it off, um, 
And and I guess the, the most important thing is, you know, I see people walking down the street running into me because they got their head down. And I call yeah. it down head syndrome. And Dan, I'm going to say this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say this because they're like waiting that. for something to happen through this device that is never mm-hmm. going to happen. It's like anticipation. Like, yeah. God, the next email is going to, you know, yeah. uh, free me from whatever it is that I was thinking. And it's like the addiction is crazy. And the, yeah, there are numbers, and then you see different numbers out. I can't remember which ones I used in the book, but the number of times a day that you pick up your phone and look yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're, you know, hundreds, right? And how many times you check an app, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you're right, though. The tricky thing is that we we do need these things, and they are really good. It's the same with social media. There are aspects of it that are great. It's, you can't just say the whole thing is bad. Right. But that also makes it, more difficult to use them in moderation. It'd be easier if you could just say, not ever going to have a phone anymore, right? in a way, I mean, that discipline, but it's hard to use it, but in moderation. But you, you're doing the same thing, right? So you, I'm sure you, I'm, I'm sure, well, I'd be interested to know, what do you do? Do you have, do you force yourself to set, spend part of the day with no phone or away from a screen? Or, or how do you do it? Well, I intentionally get away from this, what you and I are doing mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, the reason is, is because if I really wanted to, I could be on this probably every 30 minutes, right? Yeah. Talking to somebody else about something or whatever. And I think the proliferation of, of Zoom or any of this stuff is, is challenging. But I think one is when mm-hmm. you set your intentions, that my day is going to be, you know, whether you time block or whatever you do is going to be 30 minutes of this and 45 minutes of that and however you schedule it. And I'm going to get exercise and I'm going to get outside. And I will tell you, your tree merging, uh, tree hugging, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) nature, nature is to me the biggest solace I can have, right? Mm -hmm. And so just to get outside, just go outside and enjoy whatever kind of weather you're having. Um, yeah. I intentionally do try and do that as much as possible every day. Do you really? Oh, yeah. Every but you day. live someplace warm, don't you? Yeah, but even Where if I didn't, Southern I'm California? in I'm in Southern California. But I think yeah. even people in Boston right now, where maybe it's mm. cold, but cold. Yeah. To take 10 minutes and put your boots on and go walk outside and just walk around in yeah. the snow and come back in, it's refreshing. You know, you feel like, oh, man, I breathed in the fresh air. I'm, you know, your whole mind shifts. And the endorphins that are released through even, let's say you've got to stay inside, so you're going to go exercise and you get on your Peloton bike or whatever it, whatever it is, or you mm-hmm. walk around the house. Those kind of things relieve you of the distraction of the devices and you really start to realize that they're not that important. Yeah. You do. I mean, you asked me a question. I'm sorry. I, took I know. So and I, I, find it, I find it difficult. I think if I lived in Southern California, I might um, <clears throat> be more inclined to go out. Honestly, I think, and I, I think you're a lot, I think a big difference you have is sunshine. And I'm looking out my window now and it's gray yeah. and it's not particularly cool. It's in the forties. Yeah. But um, we have snow on the ground. But yeah, I don't really want to go out. And I feel like um, something about being, I, I, I spent time 
in in around Los Angeles and I I like it. I like the weather, I like the sun and even if I can go for a few days in the winter time and come back, I feel like recharged. It's uh I think it's a uh, really important. But yeah, I I, I agree. Thank you know one one blessing is we got a dog. Uh he's 10 months old now, but we have to get him out every day. So it's a yep. good thing cuz he forces you to go out and this and I and I, I do that too. We do two walks a day, yeah. and I ask my wife. I said, "I wonder how much time we have." I asked this morning actually when we were taking off, "How many hours a week do you think we spend just walking our dogs?" And we both agreed that we're probably close to fifteen hours a week. Yeah. So yeah. just walking the dog around the neighborhood or taking him on a long walk. But now you you said this a second ago, and I want to repeat it because. You mentioned angry. You said you commented in the book that the, mm. that um, the internet is making us not just dumb but angry. You yeah. state that anger posts get shared more than happy ones. Yeah. Um, why do you believe that people are angrier than in the past? And also, if you would speak about the cortisol crisis, because here comes the chemical releases in the brain by going outside. Uh, cortisol versus oxytoxin. Um, what what is it doing to us physically? And importantly, this Robert Lustig, the hacking of the American mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and our brains. So when you mentioned that, mm. I went and looked him up, and I went to Amazon and I read the the whole preface about the book. And again, he is an MD speaking about. Right. What's actually going on with our bodies? Yeah, right. Isn't that amazing? Like it. Well, that I I think it's a chain reaction. So the the, the social media companies, it's in their interest to make you angry because that makes you engaged, and so they do that by design. And then the anger you feel, which and and the longer you spend on social media, the more you get there. There's a study that shows over time people's posts get more and more angry. Yeah. Um, partly because you're conditioned by the machines to know, oh, that post got a lot of likes or shares or attention or comments. It just got engagement. I want to do that again. So, um, then you have all this anger and that, that causes cortisol. And then cortisol has these terrible physical effects. I think it's, um, related to in, inflammatory diseases like heart disease. Of course. So, um, yeah, it's really, physically bad and and again i'm nothing close to an md but um yeah i cited lustig and i think there's another doctor who's done some work in that space um and it also it actually impairs your um your ability to think your cognitive abilities that's why there's one guy says it makes you stupid but um it really so you're you're really actually impeding your ability to think clearly to think well and your physical health um and you think yeah, about it, you know, you, what you're, you, you got to have the ability because, you know, when you hack flow, like Stephen Kotler says, mm. you know, you've got to get into an altered state of consciousness. And yes, there's many ways to do that. You know, go jump on a trampoline, go take a long hike, go get on mm -hmm. your surfboard, go ride your bike, do whatever it might be. But all of those are releasing oxytoxins versus releasing cortisol. Cortisol is bad for your heart. It's bad for your overall system. But oxytoxin makes you more creative. It's, uh, oh. There are ways now that it really is kind of like, I want to say, 
the love hormone. It's really that wow. release of that chemical in you that is just the opposite of cortisol. And you want to have as much of that released as possible into your system. And, you know, you're an interesting man because you speak about your addiction to social media and how you weaned yourself off TikTok and Facebook. And, and many of our, my listeners out there probably have or have tried um, that you began rolling your anxiety wheelbarrow backwards, you said. Yeah. Um, you state that the effects of stepping away from social media was not subtle. It was profound. Um, I think that everybody out here would like to hear this. Um, what did stepping away from all this social media affect you or how did it affect you? And what advice would you have to our, our listeners to help them claw back from the use of social media? And in the context of, hey, you say shut the F up. That's, you know, when you, let me preface this. Because every time you get on your keyboard and you type, whether it's an angry comment or a pleasant one or whatever, you're speaking. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. You're, you're talking. It's your head thinking it up. And so in lieu of using words that way, you're writing it out. So what would you, yeah. what would you advise them? Um, well, I would advise doing it in phases. You can go cold turkey if you want. But for me, I sort of did a calculation. I said, which, which size am I using? How much am I using each one? And then there's this, uh, this trade-off. How much am I getting from this that's really good? How much benefit is it versus um, the, the cost of, of using it? And, and also, which one would be the most difficult to quit? Mm -hmm. you know, the ones that I'm really, really attached to the most. So in my mind, I, I figured out Facebook for whatever reason was one that I had been on a long time. I did use quite a bit. And, um, and I thought I'm really getting less and less out of this and I'm just going to stop. And so the way mm -hmm. I did it was first, I removed the app from my phone. Mm -hmm. So if I wanted to go on Facebook, I had to go to my laptop and go to a browser, which is adds just a tiny bit of friction enough to make it a little harder. And then I would try to go for a day, a week. And once you've gone for about two weeks without looking at Facebook, you really don't miss it at all. Like it's just mm -hmm. gone. And mm -hmm. I, um, I didn't even look at Facebook for a long time. I would look at it once a month. I didn't stop my account. Um, but I would look at it once a month, check in to see if anybody had written to me, say an old friend from high school who didn't know how to reach me any other way. Um, Lately, I started posting because the book is coming out and I wanted to kind of promote the book. But um, but yeah, I, I really have no tug toward Facebook anymore. When my wife does, my wife uses it quite a bit. Um, TikTok was one where it's very addictive, super addictive. And it's from, from my perspective, all empty calories. I know there are people who actually get, you know, decent um benefit from it but i was just looking at junk so one by one by one i just went through them all and then i also i stayed on twitter uh, although i now use it even less but i created like i thought i could think of it as read only mode so yeah. i would never write I but would you got over read. you got over the fomo right yeah and, fear I, and of missing I, out right yeah, yeah and i think the you know you, you commented in the book fear 
Um, right. And I think that is a big thing. People are so afraid that whatever is coming across these transits, the phones, the iPad, the computer, the whatever, that they're going to miss something. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it always surprises me that they're going to miss something that they think is so important. Yeah. Um, myself included. I mean, I'm, I fall into this game as well, but I do know. I think when you're aware of what is, how you're being manipulated, you have a much better ability to understand that even though you answered all these emails, it isn't that important. Yeah, that it didn't didn't really matter. I mean, I try to stay up with email, but um, I just find, yeah, with Twitter, I get less and less value from it. I think it was already in my, from my perspective as a user, becoming less valuable. And then since Elon Musk bought it, I don't know if, yeah, I think that the same. Helped. That I helped a lot of people <laughs> leave, right? Yeah, because it's. I just find even more and more junk, and <clears throat> and angry stuff. I find it. Um, <clears throat> I think it used to be possible to have or to follow an interesting conversation with someone who's a, a subject matter expert, and you could mm-hmm. watch a dialogue and a thread unfold and learn something. And now everything becomes immediate name calling and and. I, I think I don't know if it's trolls or why why it's become like that, but um, it actually makes me a little depressed that someone might there might be something that could be an interesting conversation, but somebody immediately. I once put, for example, I wanted to understand um, cryptocurrency and or, or NFTs. I think, and I said, look, I'm I'm really not trying to be provocative. Or I'm not trolling here, but. I really don't get these. I don't understand it. And so, example, like I saw something where you could use an NFT to get a ticket to something. And I said, well, why don't I just use my credit card to buy a ticket? Why would I buy the NFT and then use the NFT to buy the other thing? Mm-hmm. And I, I meant it. I didn't mean it as a wise guy. I meant, right. is there something I'm missing? You know, there must be. And the first response was like, "Oh, you're not trolling, huh?" Blah, 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 like like these, and I deleted the the question because I said like it's like sticking your face into a a buzz saw, you know? It's yeah. Like, so well, I, you know, I, yeah. I I I heard it once said that the only way we're going to heal this divisiveness because this is mm. you know there's a lot of divisiveness that we know has been going on in social media. Let's face it; doesn't matter which platform. I'm not going to just pick on yeah. any platform. Um, and it agitates and angers people, but the only way we're going to heal this world is through compassion. And if we can't learn to be more compassionate with one another, um, good chances of our, of us, uh, evolving as a species, uh, to something that's more conscious and living in more of, I don't think we'll ever get to a utopia, but at least some level of, you know, increased ability where we're not having wars and we're not killing people and we're not gunning people down in their churches and we're not mm-hmm. having you know riots and these kind of things is to try and understand the other side yeah. you know take take the time and that brings me back to your book 
your book really at its essence is about understanding the other side and shutting up and listening. Because in your wife's case, it was like, hey, Dan, I'm invisible. You're not listening to me, right? Understand my side, right? So if your book's filled with these stories about the power of keeping our mouths shut, what advice would you leave our listeners with about how to have a happier, more fulfilling, and I'm going to add to it, more compassionate life by not talking so much? I think you just struck on it. I think it's listening. The biggest, biggest thing that happened for me was, okay, first stop talking so you don't step on a landmine. Great. But then it's like, well, if you're not talking, you can listen. <laughs> and it's amazing to me because it, it feels like you're not doing anything, but you actually, you know, if you're listening actively, you are there. I have a story in the book about my daughter is having a meltdown to the junior in high school. It was about a paper. Mm-hmm. And I just sat with her. I really didn't say anything. I listened and she kind of self-soothed and brought herself down. And um, we ended up having this remarkable moment. And I think we've had enough of those that it's really brought us closer together. And yeah, I, I, I think the power of listening is, is beyond anything I, I ever realized. And it's been the best thing for me. <laughs> Shut up and just, listen to people ask my wife anyways it's amazing so that's the thing you think well i've changed right okay yes my wife has changed mm-hmm. she's happier mm-hmm. so it's wow i really helped her yeah i yeah. i can relate because my wife is very introverted as well yeah and i remember a time a long time ago we're going to be celebrating our 45th wedding anniversary in june wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yeah. And I said, I remember we, look, marriage is not without ups and downs, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, would you rather be right or would you rather be in love? Wow. And, you know, it, there's frequently a lot of time <laughs> we spend standing yeah. on a position yeah. to be right. Just like people are yeah. on the internet. They want to be Right. Right. And they want to be heard and they can't give it up. They won't give it up to hear the other side because their their ego is so invested in being right. And in marriages, when your ego is so invested in being right, you drive the other person from you. You literally do that. Right. I mean, I was standing at the washing machine when, or uh, the uh, washer when this epiphany occurred. I can still remember it like it's like yesterday uh, because the argument was so heated and, and she was leaving. She said, I'm going to leave. And I didn't wake up until I really realized that I just have to shut up and quit trying to be right all the time. Just hear the other side. Hear what someone else has to say. And for my listeners, this book is about that. When you really read this book, you know, go to Dan Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S dot I-O. We'll have a link to that um, article that appeared in Time as well. Get a copy of this book. It comes out 
Today is the 6th of March. It actually comes out tomorrow. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, please, please go get it. Because when you read between the lines of this book, you're going to read a lot more about what's going on and about what everybody needs. Everybody needs this. So, Dan, namaste to you. Thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you for just giving us so much wisdom about this. And um, I can't wait. I don't have a book right now, folks. So otherwise, I would have held one up. But Dan has oh, one there. Oh, I have one. Yeah. Can you very, hold the book it's up? A very bright cover. Yeah, the it's power hard to miss. Big keeping yellow letters. Mouth shut. Yeah. Um, I really love it. I love this interview. Um, I can see the growth in you as a soul. Thank you for bearing and and being vulnerable too, because it takes a lot of vulnerability to do this, as Brene Brown would say. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you for taking an interest. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Now, well, we want to have you back on again. Maybe we should have you on for some of your other books that you wrote previously. <laughs> <laughs> or if I read, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Will you take care of yourself? All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.